On August 15, 2021, Kabul, Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, marking the end of a 20-year war in that country. During that time, more than three-quarters of a million U.S. service members were deployed at least once to Afghanistan, including 123,000 airmen. One of the many impacts the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan has had was a reopening of psychological wounds that many of those veterans had sustained, sometimes years or even decades earlier. The Veterans Affairs Veterans Crisis Line saw a surge of calls and texts in the aftermath of the news that Kabul had fallen back into Taliban control. According to the VA, text messages to their crisis line jumped a staggering 98% between August 14th and August 29th. Chat messages rose by 40% and calls were up by 7% compared to the same time a year earlier. On the ground, many installation-level mental health clinics witnessed the same thing. I got a chance to talk to Major Levi Cole, a clinical psychologist stationed at one of those clinics here at Maxwell Air Force Base. We discussed the withdrawal and the mental health implications of that, as well as some other more common and constant concerns for service members. Thanks, as always, for listening. Here's episode 54. something that's kind of been in the news fairly recently is uh in in particular the events going on in afghanistan but then backing out and in general since that's not the only time this may have come up is how uh, airmen and guardians mental health can be impacted by events that occur somewhere else uh specifically uh thinking of the case where many of our uh not just airmen and guardians but soldiers sailors marines had some experience in the middle east and then Maybe they were safely back home for years and then saw some of the things happening in Afghanistan, saw the, the losses, I guess, that we were, that we were sustaining there uh, politically and militarily, and it impacted them in a negative way. I kind of mm-hmm. wanted to talk through that. We know from, uh, just from reports from your profession that numbers of the military seeking help for that sort of thing kind of went up. Yes. Uh, in the last now, it's uh, September 20th when we're recording this, so uh, a little over a month now yeah. since all that kind of really hit the fan. So if you could kind of talk to us as far as give, maybe give us some terms to how to understand this. Sure. And, and then we'll get into what we can do about it as a, as a profession, as leaders, and, and maybe even as those impacted ourselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's been a big hot topic for a lot of people and— um, when in Kabul, uh, the, in, in Afghanistan, when the U.S. withdrew, a lot of people were impacted. In my, my flight command role, I don't see a large number of patients, but probably in the, in the first few weeks, I would say easily half of the patients that I worked with were heavily impacted by what was happening over there. And, and I think the, the experiences vary from, from person to person, but, but you're absolutely right that, that across the board, this, this is impacting people. You know, I, I think for, for some, you know, w- w- one, one term that comes to mind is that of vicarious trauma. And so I think there are some people who, who in their work over there over, over the last decade or more, they, they know people personally. I've even sp- spoken to some people who are in, in personal contact with, with Afghans over there who are concerned for their, for their livelihood, for the family's livelihood, um, who've been involved in kind of... in, in 
unofficial operations to help help people escape. And so I think for some individuals, this this idea of vicarious trauma as they as they learn about impact to to individuals over there, that that may apply. So so vicarious trauma is is this concept of when when we work closely with individuals who themselves have suffered trauma in, in, the, in the process of working closely, you know, as, as humans, we, we can't help but, but be impacted by others. And so, but, but when we work with someone closely in a very um, emotionally connected way and in a personally significant way, we, we empathize. Um, and, and there's a neurobiological basis for that. They're called mirror neurons where our mind, it, it fires in the way that the other person is is feeling and thinking, and it helps. It's kind of the neurobiological basis for empathy, and so naturally, as humans, we, as we interact with those individuals, we we feel their pain, and then we when we have firsthand accounts of of their suffering and and the traumas that they've suffered, it can even impact us to the degree where where some of the symptoms that that go along with post traumatic um, stress reactions, uh, we can start to experience ourselves, and so I think for some. Uh, individuals um, that could be their experience for others I think the the concept of moral injury can can apply quite closely to them and so moral injury is this concept of when when there's a betrayal of what's right okay and uh, and it could be at the hands of of someone else or or an institution that, that you deeply trusted or it could be yourself, but it's this betrayal of, of what's right, where previously held this belief that, that this, this individual or this person, this institution um, had, had the, the good of others in mind or the good of me in mind, and then um, come, to, come to learn through a, a series of events that that's not the case. And so there's this deep um, betrayal and, and kind of existentially unsettling, uh, or it can be applied individually, personally, where I was in a position where I found that I was complicit in something that I thought was morally reprehensible or, or that I disagreed with. And for various reasons, uh, I, I was complicit, um, be it because I didn't feel like I, I had the power or the, the ability to, to resist or to, to dissent, or I got swept up in it. And, and so now I, I've, I've betrayed, betrayed my own moral compass and my own uh, personal values and 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 that is one that is that is deeply emotionally and existentially ups, uh, unsettling um, and so so here as it relates to to Afghanistan and everything going on I think for a lot of people uh, in in various ways there, there's a sense of of betrayal um, that for, for some people it's you know I, I invested years of my life for this mission that was supposed to be uh, for good, but but their experience with the withdrawal is that well, what was the point of it all, or or the the perception that um, that that political reasons trumped what was in the best interest of the people involved, and so um, there, there's a sense of betrayal that the the leaders in charge of 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 the mission have have betrayed us, who have sacrificed a lot, or who who aren't prioritizing the things that. That are most important. So I think that's the experience for some, and then probably for the greatest number of people is simply the experience of loss and grief. 
that, uh, again, there, there's been a personal investment in the mission in Afghanistan, whether, be it through, through deployments or TDYs or, or spouses, family members being gone, birthdays and anniversaries and the, the birth of children that have been missed out on, significant events that, that you've missed out on because of being gone, or friends and colleagues and, and fellow uh, military members who have, who have been lost in, in combat or, or to have having lost people to the, to the psychological wounds of, of war, that there have been heavy losses um, psychologically and physically, and, and wondering what was it all for, and, or, or knowing individuals over there that, that you cared about, um, or a mission that you cared about and feeling like, like it's now gone. And, and, and the good that I, that I thought was there is no longer there. And, and so there's, there's sort of grief over the loss of, of time invested. And, you know, had, had it all been for good, this would have been worth it since that, what was it all for? So I think they're very similar experiences mirrored with what a lot of people experience in Vietnam in terms of what was the point of it all. Yeah, I've heard that comparison quite a, quite a few times in the last few weeks. And you uh, kind of gave us a lot to, to think about there as far as how it impacts Lots of people. You started off talking about vicarious trauma and uh, wanted to kind of maybe define some things here. So when you say vicarious trauma, that's only kind of the part of that where, say, I'm feeling the trauma that somebody else went through. Is that yeah. at least a, and, and okay? And I think when, when you work closely with someone. And okay. so this is, this is an experience that, that, that comes up quite a bit for, for uh, Certain healthcare workers or mental health workers who 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 or could be clergy who who work closely with with human suffering, and so as in the process of doing the healing work, uh, they're they're getting exposed to kind of the raw accounts of of the trauma of 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 human evil, of human depravity, and so and 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 a lot of the feelings that the that the client or the patient felt or feels as a result of the trauma that that residue is, is then carried yourself. Feelings of, you know, it could be um, the, just similar feelings of helplessness or powerlessness. It could be sort of the, the intrusive nature of the, the experiences that creep into your, your thoughts and, and um, nightmares. Maybe it's being more on guard, more on edge. A lot of the the, the common reactions that go along with survivors of trauma, you start to feel because of how closely you're working with them. And, and, and that is the topic that I, I mentioned that I have taught on here at the JAG school because attorneys and, and, and paralegals are exposed to the same. Uh, in, in many cases, you're, it's, it's not just the, the, the personal testimony of, of the survivor, but also seeing the, the graphic images and the graphic sounds and the graphic accounts and the graphic details of, of horrible crimes and, and the most depraved parts of humanity. And that is deeply impacting. It, and and there, there's a, even a carryover there, I think, with moral injury where, you know, perhaps it's, it's sort of a betrayal of, inhu- of human goodness that losing faith in humanity and, and who can I trust? Who can I rely on? And and especially when, when an individual, say, is already overworked and they don't have a whole lot of emotional bandwidth to absorb uh, and do the processing needed to, 
to get through that, it, it can it can end up weighing heavily and 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 causing um, a great impact and and great harm. But also burnout can can leave people more vulnerable to that again because of the psychological resources that are that are exhausted in the process of being burned out. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense. I spent a few years as a defense counsel, and uh, that in that in that context, you end up getting exposed to. Uh, a lot of the the worst parts of humanity. Yeah. <laughs> you hear the you know you're, you end up here in both sides of of a lot of nasty things. Like yeah. you said, you, you end up with sounds and images to go along with that, and you, you kind of see all the all the brokenness that it all leaves behind. Yeah. yeah, I see how that can have a pretty negative impact on people. So, kind of separating, differentiating uh, that that vicarious trauma idea that. I am working so closely with somebody who's going some or has been through something terrible mm-hmm. that I end up kind of assuming some of the trauma of that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, comparing that with maybe this idea that I went through something 15 years ago mm-hmm. and I thought I'd done a pretty good job of getting, you know, getting to a, a place where I was managing my mental health, mm-hmm. but then I all of this is happening and I'm dealing with those thoughts of what was it for and or just actual, you know, tanks rolling on TV explosions and things like that. Yeah. Well, I think it's the rare person who, who, who welcomes uh, thinking about unpleasant events. Right. So I think most people's kind of reflexive reaction to, um, to traumatizing or, extremely negative or unpleasant situations is to to avoid it and to not think about it and and that's understandable and 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 that's it's not a bad temporary solution and um in order to just kind of get through a a a very difficult time but i think what what can end up happening for for a good portion of people is in their preference to, to to not have to think about it it's the the memories and 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 the the feelings and and all that associated with the events get buried let me just get back to the mission sometimes the the, the mission becomes a, a a very strong demand signal to where there's not time to to attend to and pro- emotionally process events that have happened other times the 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 demand of the mission is is a welcomed distraction and then that becomes habit of if i keep myself busy and kind of repeatedly and continuously uh, focused on uh, other things that demand my attention, that I don't have to attend to what's what's underneath, what what's below the surface. And so, with with my with my patients, with with whom I do clinical work, I, re- I often refer to this as emotional water skiing, where you know if if I if I stay moving, I can skim up on the surface because if I slow down, then I start to sink into what's there. And, and have to start feeling. But I think uh, here with Afghanistan, there's a lot that has not been avoidable. Maybe people who, hey, that was 10 years ago, that was 15 years ago. I've, I've done a pretty good job of kind of pushing it out of my uh, my thoughts and my, my memories. But then now this is bringing it right back to the forefront. And so it's, an, it, it's, it's kind of becoming a, a much more salient uh, demand signal for them emotionally. And and, and, and it's drawing it to the surface. Now that we've kind of covered a good bit about what the, uh, what the issue is, what the issue can be, some of the things that you're, you're seeing, uh, I wanted to switch 
gears now and talk a little bit about uh, hopefully some some positive things as far sure. as how we can deal with it, what resources are available for the individual themselves, and then we'll move into kind of uh, what what we as wingmen can do and be on the lookout for, and then kind of wrap up with with leaders and leadership putting things in place for their for their people. So, kind of just to, to kind of plug, I know the Air Force and society at large. We try hard to, yeah. to have things in place to help people going through this sort of thing. What are what are some of the things that that you would like to steer people toward? Sure. Well, first, what I would kind of qualify this with is if you are struggling with things, I think it's important to to keep in mind that maybe what makes these these world events sometimes more challenging is that they're not quite as um, not quite as concrete or organized or we don't maybe don't have quite the established framework that we would for 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 more kind of personal events or personal losses that come um, because because they happen more frequently whether it's losses of loved ones or you know of a a beloved pet or i don't know a car being stolen or something like that uh, that's something that people deal with a little more frequently it's a little more concrete whereas what we're kind of talking about here is is a bit more it's it's a bit more existential a bit more intangible and so it, it's something that that isn't going to crystallize and, and make a lot of sense just on its own. And so it takes time, it takes space to kind of settle into the emotional space needed to effectively process this. So I think one, irrespective of the resources, is if you're struggling, make time for yourself to, to think about it and, and realizing that that may come with a lot of unpleasant thoughts and memories, but those are important things to, to address and, and to work through. You know, so maybe it's going on a hike on your own just to be able to have time to, to, to think about and process or just spending time kind of away from, from people or journaling or something like that, something where you can get into an emotional space to, to think and reflect and, and process things to, to help it make more sense. And then as far as specific resources, so thankfully being in the military, there's a lot of resources available. So kind of on a more informal level, just hopefully you have a good friend that you can call up and say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this. Can we get together and just let me kind of like talk through this or something like that. There are the chaplains, right, and on bases. So, you know, especially for, for wh whether you're religious or not, whether you have kind of a formal faith uh, system that, that, that is meaningful to you or not, uh, I think chaplains are, are well-equipped to navigate some of the, the spiritual and existential issues that arise in things like this. It's not to say that that a, a you know the, the clinicians therapists can't do that either, but but chaplains are great at that. So chaplains are a good resource, and um, and they have full confidentiality. You know, it may be a little more rare, but but for some people, um, some of their personal struggles may, may be with uh, how how I was personally complicit in some things, and I don't want any of that on my record, right? And so the chaplains with them, it's full confidentiality, and there's no documentation there. So that's good resource. Then you have the, the military family life counselors and military one source where both are undocumented and they do non-medical counseling. If there's a diagnosable issue they, they should be referring to for, for formal treatment, but, but they offer counseling to, again, to help people just kind of think through and process things. Like an attorney, right? Not, not every therapist is going to be great. So you want to do a little bit of your research and 
uh, see who's who's skilled and and who's a good fit. Um, so you got to shop for a good therapist the same way that you'd shop for a good attorney. And then in your local uh, military treatment facility, you know, you're going to have your, your mental health clinic and the resources that they can provide in terms of individual therapy with family advocacy. There's um, resources for families. In, in Embedded in primary care, there's often going to be a, a, a clinician. I, I kind of call it the Jiffy Lube for mental health, but embedded in primary care is a behavioral health consultant who's, who's kind of there for very short-term, brief kind of interventions, um, short sessions for, for people who, you know, maybe feel less comfortable going up to the mental health clinic or just doesn't seem like something that you just kind of want a quick kind of touch and go on, on a topic. So those are those are some some of the main resources that I, that I would uh, refer most people to, to to begin to address some of these things as they come up. Thanks. Uh, and on to the next kind of segment here. I know we talk about this every year. We have to go through training for suicide prevention and things like that. So it's not completely foreign to us. But if you can, maybe on a little bit more human level, person to person, if you were trying to brief one shop on, hey, this is what you should be looking for uh, in the people around you to to see if they might be struggling. You know, here's some of the things you might ask them or here's something that might come up. What are some of the maybe warning signs or just things that that me as a friend would want to want to be on the lookout for in the people around me. Sure. So certainly people who um, kind of significant changes to their mood or their, their, their dress or their hygiene, right? Maybe you notice that someone's drinking more than, or they didn't drink before and now they're drinking. So some kind of uncharacteristic changes are always good things to pay attention to. If someone is kind of speaking more morbidly or expressing a sense of hopelessness or kind of feeling that uh, they would just be better off if, if they were, were dead or that they don't, there's nothing worth living for. I mean, those are kind of fairly obvious warning signs that someone is struggling and, and needs extra um, attention and care. But I think the challenge with suicide is that so often um, there are no warning signs. And... And that's what makes it most cha- so challenging is people can be really, really good at putting on a, on a good face, smiling for others to where you never know that they're suffering internally. And various reasons why someone is in that particular space, but I think it reinforces just how important it is for us to be connected to one another on more than a superficial level and to take time when we have it to to get to know people well, um, to lean in a little bit deeper, to, to, to ask, how are you really doing? And, and also to, to kind of take a look at ourselves in the mirror and, and, and see, is, is there anything that I bring to the table in my relationships that would make me an unsafe person for someone to confide in or maybe not being terribly approachable by someone so that if someone is in that space, is there anything, any barriers that, that I bring to the table, that they wouldn't bring it up with me. Because uh, a lot of people have a, have a hair trigger for trusting others. And so, um, and it may be something from long ago, but, uh, you know, it could be an offhanded remark that was kind of callous or insensitive, but now it's, well, I, I know who not to go to and talk to um, or, or say anything like that around. And so you have to be mindful of not just what we say verbally or explicitly, but also the nonverbal messages that we communicate or the double messages that we communicate so that we're not speaking out of both sides of our mouth. 
you know, what we know is that that healthy relationships are at the foundation of of, of being human. That if we're not connected relationally, uh, we suffer. Uh, we we know from from research that that infants who are not given proper care and attention, emotional care and attention, can can not just um, fail to thrive, but can even die from from a lack of human contact, even if all their basic human needs are are cared for. And so, what we know is that that the relational connection is, is so critical to to not just our emotional and mental health, but even physical health. We know that that people live ten to fifteen years longer when they're connected to others socially uh, and, and healthy relationships and health issues are less and few, fewer, yeah, fewer medical issues and, and people are happier. And, and, and so that, that relational connection is absolutely critical. Now, what conspires against that in the military is the ops tempo. And so that for leaders, that is something that becomes especially important is, is how do I effectively advocate for and intervene and set boundaries on my people to create space for people to connect. The, the demand is always going to be there. There's, uh, that's not changing. And so uh, how do I effectively create space for my people to, to have the time that they need to, to connect with their families, to connect with their loved ones, with their friends, and also people in the unit? And, and that's not an easy task, but, but it's an important one. And so there's just a few things related to, to suicide. It's not an easy one. I don't think that you know, certainly education and information is, is, is a piece that we can't neglect, but it's not enough. We don't change from information. And so we need to find a way to, to get more involved and to dec- decrease stigma around help seeking. Um, and I think that's where leaders can really model that by um, appropriately being vulnerable with their people and, and um, encouraging people to reach out for health, help. And, and when they do, to not penalize them in other ways so that the message is consistent, that reaching out for help is, is a sign of strength. It's a, it's a sign of taking care of yourself. And, uh, and, and that's what we want people to do. So um, I, I think the more that that message gets reinforced and communicated effectively, uh, the better shape we'll be. Yeah. Well, well, the last thing that I wanted to, was going to kind of ask you about was, what are some good things that leadership can be thinking about? And the last few things you've talked about have been right in there. So I, I kind of had a follow up for one part of that. And uh, that's uh, I love this idea of leaders recognizing and taking ownership of the problem that our organization uh, throws up barriers to this kind of connection. And leaders are in a position to at least try to, to take some of those down. So what are some of the good ways you've seen leaders be able to, to do that in work centers? Uh, I, I know that the concept or the the topic of emotional intelligence is is really kind of a buzz buzz term, you know. And the, a lot of leadership coaching and, and leadership development focuses on focuses on emotional intelligence, and and so with buzzwords, there there can be a tendency to kind of be dismissive of of it as some some sort of like pop culture phenomenon. But but there's actually a lot of truth in it. That what what we refer to when, when we refer to emotional intelligence are are people who are attuned to their own to their own internal world uh, to have the ability to empathize and to um, connect well with others and to be emotionally healthy and to to, to have self awareness of knowing uh, the, the difference between their own personal issues and, and and the issues in the workplace and knowing how to set appropriate boundaries. I mean, it, it's a, it's a it's a big topic um, that 
people, you know, do entire courses on. But I, but I think of leaders who are attuned to their own humanity, who who have done some of their own work and have connected um, with their own struggles and, and, and are kind to themselves instead of being disparaging um, or, or critical of, of weakness or, or struggling. Those are some of the important qualities that leaders possess. And that that emanates in the messages that are communicated. I, I think the, the effective leaders are ones that don't shy away from acknowledging struggle and acknowledging struggle as as expected and, and something that's normal and something that needs to be worked through rather than something that is, is looked down upon or something that should be avoided. And then that message gets, gets um, felt and heard by the people around where this is not, if I'm struggling, if there's a problem, it's not something that I, that I need to be ashamed about, not to ignore it or neglect it, but, but there's safety to bring it up because there's no judgment in bringing it up. And there's a willingness and support from people to to address the problem and to, to find the resources to, to best over, to best address the problem and work through it. So I think effective leaders have done their, their personal work and, and are attuned to people and not just, not just doing it at commander's calls, but, but it becomes a part of kind of the everyday interactions that are, that they have with the people in their unit. Makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I think we, we all recognize uh, good leaders that we've seen who have uh, been able to embody some of that stuff and then maybe seen leadership in ourselves or others that, that has some growth that could occur there. Uh, I wanted to ask you kind of, uh, this isn't exactly a JAG-themed episode here. Uh, however, one thing you mentioned in there uh, about consequences for taking care of yourself. Uh, I know... There's a reality that if your mental health gets to a certain extent, you are going to struggle to do your job. And it is a, it is a, you know, it is a commander's or supervisor's job to make sure that the people assigned to a task are, are up for it. So, mm-hmm. so there's this tension between letting my people get the help they need and then also possibly necessary consequences for finding out that, say, you know, one of my troops is, is, uh, you know, has had suicidal ideations or things like that. So I kind of wanted to pick your brain a little bit about if you've seen that go on from your perspective, have you been involved in any situations where you you felt like maybe legal and command were coming down too harshly? Uh, I know as a defense counsel, I'm happy to say uh, there were, you know, I'm, I feel free saying there were some instances where I felt like the message being sent by these consequences uh, is that you better not go to mental health or or there'll be, you know, you'll you'll have trouble. You'll either get in trouble by getting paperwork or your career may be even in jeopardy, in, you know, in the right uh, or the wrong situation. Do you have any uh, personal experience or or thoughts on that kind of interplay and phenomenon? In, in our role in, in the clinic, we don't see maybe what happens behind the scenes or kind of administratively after the fact. Um, I, I think probably... Where, where, where someone has sought mental health care and, and it's come up as a, as a potential problem is, is probably more with like re- renewing clearances or you're, you need to get cleared for, for a special duty or something like that and, and it gets flagged. Um, but what we know is there's, there's actually been some, some, some research that um, some Air Force psychologists have done that when, when people address problems early and, and self-refer to get the help that they need for problems, 95 plus percent of the time, 
There are no adverse consequences at all. Uh, command isn't even notified because uh, they're, they're addressing the problem early and when, when it's smaller to, to where it is, it is not having those, those real adverse impact to, to, to duty performance. It's, it's when people neglect to, to address the problems that do exist when, when it continues to build and build and become larger and larger problems. And then it does arise to, to the level of, of command because of, you know, whether it's a DUI or someone needing to be hospitalized. And, and then it does start to have greater impact because the, the consequences are, are, are more significant. So, and then at that point, um, sometimes people's hands are tied, but vast majority of the time, there are no adverse consequences. It's, it's a very small percentage of people who, who end up getting administratively separated um, or medically discharged for mental health reasons in the grand scheme of things. And so I think the message is that we, we just need to, to see it as, as, as an important part of taking care of our physical health, that if we blow an ACL, we, we go get physical therapy. If our back is hurting, we see a, a chiropractor. If we're not, if we're not feeling well, you know, coughing and sneezing, we go to our PCM and, and get treated. And, and if we're, uh, if we're struggling with anxiety or depression or anger issues, then, then we go see a therapist to, to help figure out what's going on and, and what can be done to, to address that. So, you know, thankfully, I think we've, as, as a whole, we've got a lot of good leaders that when, when there is leadership involvement, it's fairly positive with people. But, but as I said earlier, I think there, there's, there's a lot of people who have a, who have a hair trigger for, for trust. And, and early on in their career, there are some pretty negative messages that were communicated about going to mental health or insensitive, callous remarks about the kind of people that go to, to mental health. And so they never do it again. They, they never even consider reaching out until it feels safe. Maybe it's at the end of their career where they feel like, okay, I'm six months away from retirement. It feels safe now. It's not going to have a, a, an impact on my career. And, but then ooh, the, the tragic thing at that point is there's been a lot of suffering for years and years and um, impact to family and relationships and quality of life. And so there's also been a lot lost in the process too. And personally worked with people who, who thankfully they do come in at the end of their career for help, but, but there's deep regret that they didn't um, reach out for help sooner. So, you know, it, because it becomes a lot harder when, when something's been neglected for a long period of time, just like if you, you know, if you wash a pot shortly after it's been dirtied, it's, it's a lot easier to do that than if you let it sit and let the material, the food kind of stay caked on and dry for, for, for a few days. It's, it's a, ho- a lot harder to scrub it off. So same thing with mental health issues. The, the earlier we address it, the, be- the better and easier it is to work through. Yeah. And as we kind of wrap up here, that sounds like uh, I've been thinking through kind of the takeaways here. And certainly one thing I've learned is the importance of uh, taking care of things early and, yeah. and communicating to the people that, that may be under me that, you know, you should, you owe it to yourself, to the Air Force, to, to everybody involved to take care of yourself, including getting whatever mental health help you need as early as you can. Um, and then the other that, that jumped out at me was just how much emphasis you're placing on uh, human connection yes. and uh, seeking that out, fostering it, uh, and looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, is, you know, what can I do to connect to the people around me better, to be somebody and in relationships where people can come to me or I can go to them uh, whenever whenever we need to. 
what else uh, would you leave our listeners with? Yeah, well, the, the, the human connection piece is so critical, but the military lifestyle is not conducive for it. And it's not to say that we don't develop good relationships working in the military. In many cases, people develop lifelong friends. But when we're PCSing every one to three years, it's, it's hard to, 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 to develop roots with, with relationships. And so it does require a very deliberate, intentional focus to develop them. It's just not going to, and, and, and that re- relationships, good relationships take time to develop. And that can be challenging when, when you don't have the time. And then also realizing that some of the, the people, say, maybe in the local area who are established, their expectation of you moving may lead to them not investing as much. And so it just, it, it, it's not an easy task. And so there, there definitely has to be work, work put into it. And so it's, it's just an, it's, it's an extra thing that military members, I think, need to, to pay attention to and, and, because it's easy to, to neglect otherwise. It takes a lot of energy. So yeah, that, would, that would be just my last little thing that I'd add to that. Yep, that, that's huge. When you uh, recognize how hard something is, is going to be, you're a little better prepared to, to tackle it whenever you have to. Yeah. So, uh, Major Cole, we really appreciate you coming by. Thanks for, uh, for providing us with your insight and your uh, wisdom on these uh, important issues. Uh, thanks, and I hope we get to talk to you again someday soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School podcast. One of the best ways you can support this publication is by following or subscribing the show and leaving us a rating. You can find this episode, transcription, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil slash podcasts. We welcome your feedback. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of its guests and hosts. 